Hello and welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast where we go into the lab and talk about how players and teams across the league can improve. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I'll be your host. And as always, I'm joined by my two co-podcasters. Uh, on the line from Chicago, we've got 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. Hey, Neil. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Good. Good. Just kind of waiting for this thing to start. Preseason yeah. is kind of a tease at this point. It really is, yeah. It's kind of like zombie basketball. It's like <laughs> almost the real thing, but but not quite there. So I'm excited, too. And then also in the studio with me, we have my fellow 538 sports writer, Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. How's it going? Doing okay. I'm pretty much in the same boat. We're all, you know, just waiting. All right. So uh, let, let's get on to the show. Uh, last week, we, we talked about the Western Conference and went into detail about every team in order. We broke it out by tiers uh, in the league, which seems to be kind of a popular way of organizing season previews. But we'll push on with the same thing this week, and we'll talk about the Eastern Conference. Uh, some might call it the Leastern Conference. But I think there's some interesting things to talk about with the teams there, and so we'll dive in. But first, we have a news item uh, we talk about at the beginning of every show. This week, I wanted to talk about Adam Silver at a, at a presser the other day. He talked about the possibility of reseeding the playoffs 1 through 16, regardless of conference. A lot has been talked about how the Western Conference is so much better than the East, and so you end up with teams that narrowly miss the playoffs in the West that could have been five seeds in, in the East, and how that's a little bit unfair. And so Silver said that he would continue to look at the possibility of reseeding teams 1 through 16, regardless of conference. He also talked about how the schedule's not balanced. That's the big hurdle to doing this. Uh, and, and so it was a matter of something that will be taken under consideration by the league. So I wanted you guys' take on this. Do you think it makes sense to do a 1 through 16 seeding? Is this something that's long overdue, or is this imbalanced schedule too much of a, a problem to overcome right now? So the schedule's obviously a problem, but like for me, this is the same kind of track that they were doing with the lottery reform. Where, Which we talked about last week. Right, right, right. So... Like yeah, it doesn't do anything for like the the bot, the very worst teams, but like it's a step on eliminating the treadmill that we always uh, you know talk about, where if you're kind of good or kind of bad, like you're just going to be stuck there forever. So look at the the Bulls this season, who have just thrown everyone out. They're just saying we're going to be as bad as we possibly can. They were the eight seed last year. They could still be you know okay, and they decided it's not worth their time. And that's because well they weren't going to get much better unless they you know did something. So now. If you would reseed the playoffs, if they didn't make the playoffs, and all of a sudden they got a quadrupled chance at getting a pretty good pick next year by just missing the playoffs, uh, you know, combining like a you know theoretical reseeding with the actual lottery reform that we're going to see, then all of a sudden they can be you know a you know moderately good team, moderately bad team instead of just abysmal like they're going to be this year, and like they're not stuck there forever. It it changes a lot if you do that. It all of a sudden. The Eastern Conference now, Zach Lowe had this great tweet last week where he said, you know, even with Nick Batum hurt for 10 to 12 weeks, the Charlotte Hornets are really, really elite at being at the Eastern Conference. And, <laughs> and when you look at something like that, it's true. Everybody in the East basically has a chance unless they've gone out of their way to kind of ruin their own chances. And so you put it 1 to 16 and all of a sudden that's out the window for most teams. All of a sudden... You need to be decent. You need to probably be around 40 wins at least to even have a shot of making the playoffs. And so it would change a lot. It would force teams to be competitive as a whole instead of just being competitive relative to their league. I, I think I'd prefer that. But at the same time, it would force a lot of teams to rethink the equation entirely. And I'm not sure how long that would take or if they would need a little bit more time to do that before they reach that kind of conclusion. Yeah, you almost might need to like ease them into it, which I think the lottery reform was also a form of just taking a small step at first and then maybe using that as like a, a runway towards something bigger down the line. Mm -hmm. Now, I also want to point out that, you know, for all the talk about uh, conference imbalance and how 
you know, it might not be fair to throw everyone in this kind of one through 16 seeding or even look at the teams without drastically changing who gets to play who. Uh, and we should keep in mind that Eastern Conference teams don't only play Eastern Conference teams and, and vice versa with the West. And so I did a little, you know, number crunching on last year using what they call the simple rating system at Basketball Reference, which is basically just point differential but adjusted for strength of schedule. And looking at the average strength of schedule for Eastern and Western Conference teams, the average Eastern Conference team only played a a, a team that was about 0.3, so a third of a point per game worse than the overall league average, which if you were an average team and got to play that schedule, you would win 42 games a year. So being in the East to an average team is really only worth like one extra win just on pure schedule strength. So I think oftentimes we kind of look at the big imbalance of the records across the league and use that as a way to say, oh my God, being in the East is worth so many more extra wins. But forget about the fact that you still play a fair number of cross-conference games uh, during the season and that that, you know, might be an even better argument for doing this 1-16 through 16 seeding is that you're not really screwing over that many teams uh, in terms of just raw schedule strength comparisons. Right. I think it's more like there's the travel distance thing. That is obviously. a big one. Yeah. And like when you're doing projections, that like factors in pretty heavily. But but yeah, all you're taking away is like this artificial like waypoint that the Eastern teams have of making the playoffs. But like really making the playoffs in the NBA isn't a real milestone. Like the way we differentiate teams is really like we break it down into rounds. Like, are they like a first round exit? Are they a second round team? Are they a conference finalist team Mm -hmm. or like a championship contender? And like the Eastern teams, if you make the playoffs, there is a wide, wide gulf between like saying, okay, they're like a team that, you know, could make the Western Conference finals. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I think that's honestly the biggest consideration here. It's not just the idea that You've got East and West, and do we put them in the same boat in terms of the playoff seating? But once you do that, the travel that's required for the playoffs, and whether it makes sense or not to have Miami fly all the way to go play the Clippers in a first-round series, for instance, and is that fair? They actually even seem to be looking out for us a little bit to some extent, but whether it makes sense to potentially have a seven-game series where you're going to travel that great a distance and being able to keep the games at a certain time. How do you play a game, a playoff game, that's not the finals uh, for both of those fan bases so that people can watch it at, at a decent hour? And so that's the challenge there, too, I think, that they're worried about. Okay, so let's leave it there. And before we go to the main course of the show, let's have a word from our sponsor. When you need quality gift options for the special person in your life, turn to 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, when you order a dozen red or assorted roses for only $29.99, 1-800-Flowers will give you another dozen plus a vase absolutely free. That's up to 50% off the original price. Whether you've got romance on your mind with red roses or want to brighten someone's day with vibrant assorted roses, 1-800-Flowers has the options and deals for you. This beautiful bouquet of roses will leave your loved ones stunned without spending a fortune. You can't make a wrong choice. Amazing roses at an unbeatable price. These gorgeous roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness. Order one dozen red or assorted roses for only $29.99, plus another dozen and a vase for free. It's an unreal deal and a small price to pay for the loved ones in your life. There's 1-800-Flowers.com, and then there's everybody else. To order a dozen red or assorted roses, plus an extra bouquet and a vase for just $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter the code LAB, L-A-B. That's 1-800-Flowers.com, code LAB. One more time, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter the code LAB. Okay, so it's time to talk about the Eastern Conference. And just like last week, we broadly grouped teams into tiers. It was a little bit weirder uh, with the East when I was doing this because there's just so many different teams of different varying quality, it seems like, and, and a lot of teams of mediocre quality that I couldn't decide where to put them. So you guys might disagree with me on some of these uh, tiers, but basically going to rank them from top to bottom, generally speaking, on how good they're projected to be. Uh, so let's start running them down. And the first team in in the elite 
class, the top tier, I have as the Cleveland Cavaliers. Big surprise. This is the team that's won the East multiple years running. Uh, they had a very eventful offseason. And so my question for you guys, just to kick things off with the Cavs, is is this going to be another year of Cavaliers Eastern Conference dominance or are all of these weird shakeups that they did uh, going to finally come back and haunt them this season? So almost by design, like the Cavs are impossible to project this season. Like, so like they were, they were anyway, because, you know, they famously, you know, flipped the switch. Or whatever yeah. They were very year. difficult to project for almost all of last year's regular season as our ELO model found, or as people on Twitter, let us know about our ELO model <laughs> throughout the year. Fairly enough, though. But, like, this year they have so much of their roster value tied up into a dude who's probably not going to play until, like, January. This is Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas. And so, like, yeah, like, there is no way that you can actually, like, just project what this team's going to look like in the playoffs based on what they did last year, based on what they're going to do for most of the regular season. And when I look at them, I just – they look like they're sabotaging their own team to some extent when you look at roster moves that – Whatever. It seems like there's a lot of name recognition, name value stuff on that team, which whatever. I can live with that. But then the lineup stuff that you're already kind of getting out to a bad start with. Dwayne Wade starting in place of J.R. Smith, for instance. The fact that Tristan Thompson looks like he's going to come off the bench for them. And you look at this, and this is a team that really struggled with defense last year. One of the worst defensive teams we've ever seen make the NBA Finals. And a team that gave up, I think, was it 115 points almost every game of the finals? And now you're adding in guys into the lineup with Derrick Rose and Dwayne Wade that are not ideal defenders. And you're putting two of your better on-ball defenders, pick-and-roll switch defenders, off the bench. And so it's just a team that I don't, I don't love the makeup of this team. I don't love the fact that you've got two guys that aren't great spot-up shooters coming in for LeBron James who don't really fit that team that well as starters. And yeah, and we should also mention that even when this team is quote-unquote whole and Isaiah Thomas actually comes back, he is a terrible defensive liability, as you would expect from someone of his size. Dynamite offensive player, one of the best in the league. But if we're talking about a team that was already pretty bad defensively and has a lot of these kind of decrepit guys in the backcourt that they're relying on early in the season, and then when the big appearance later in the season from this guy that's going to be you know kind of saving them or improving them at least, he's also not going to help them defensively well right and so you hope maybe that shifts around some of the calculus uh, when Isaiah comes back of who's in the starting lineup who's not because they have more offense out there now maybe they bring in a little bit more defense into the starting lineup yeah maybe they don't play a small uh, lineup with Jay Crowder at the four while also having one of the smallest point guards in the league at the one although that did okay for Boston when they did that that's true but I mean also look at the locker room stuff where like J.R. Smith is in the uh, Cleveland.com today saying we talked about it being like coming off the bench as we talked about it it wasn't the most positive conversation but we talked about it and we'll get through it together wow that sounds really positive <laughs> yeah he is not happy about this and like tristan like presumably feels you know a lot the same and so like that has an effect on like you know what's going on with the team and so what Dwayne wade's adding then ha- is important because like he's obviously you know throwing the team out of balance but what Dwayne Wade does well is traditionally, like, get to the rim. So five seasons ago, or, like, whatever. Uh, prime D-Wade. Prime D-Wade. He was shooting 73% at the rim, which was very, very good. By last season, he was down to 57%, which is just about or a little below league average. And he was getting there less also. He was shooting, like, 38%, 37% um, at the rim, down to 25% of his shots coming there. So he can't get to the rim, and when he does get there, he's not shooting nearly as well as he used to. And this is a guy who's not really a long-distance shooter ever at, at really most of his career. No, he shot like 30% on catch-and-shoot threes last year. Like, So if they're expecting Dwayne Wade to come in and you know fill a shooting role, fill a getting-to-the-rim role, like that's not really what he is anymore. He does cut really well off the ball. I, I just wrote a story saying that he was great at that, and he's actually kind of declined in that regard over the last couple of years. And one of the things that he does kind of excel at, though, is the idea of being this great off-ball cutter, at least when he's playing next to LeBron James. You look at what percentage of his offense comes from off-ball cuts, and he's almost double as effective when he's playing with LeBron at getting to the basket. Teams losing sight of where he is because he had so much spacing in Miami. He'll presumably have pretty decent spacing in Cleveland. And so he might become a dangerous cutter again, 
But, yeah, I just don't love the idea of having you, – you think about the guys LeBron has had these last few years. All these shooters, and now you add in Rose and Wade that aren't good from outside, and they're not really good defensively either. I just don't know that this team needs that, at least not all in the same five-man lineup. Now, one thing, you know, we've been kind of uh, down on Cleveland, uh, it sounds like, a little bit in, in this segment so far. I want to point out that Jay Crowder, though, is a player that uh, might be sort of one of the most important players to their season, first of all, and is also a really underrated player. He can shoot, he can defend, he can kind of do all of the things that you guys just mentioned might be deficient from some of the other players that they picked up. Uh, and if you believe in the stats, and maybe this is pushing it a little bit much, but uh, according to Real Plus Minus, which is ESPN's sort of all-in-one player metric stat, uh, he was the 20th best player in the entire NBA last season. Again, that's pushing it a little bit, but it does kind of underscore how he makes teams better when he's on the floor and he does a lot of the things without needing to command uh, plays being run for him or, you know, needing the ball a lot. Uh, and that's the kind of player that it does seem like would work well with LeBron and would work well in, in this Cleveland uh, setup. He'll help them for sure, but it, it, it's relying on a couple things. He needs to shoot as well as he did last year as opposed to the way he did the years before that where he was below average, I think, from outside. He's going to have to do way more defensively because, frankly, outside of LeBron now, he's really their only good defender out there. And, and LeBron, it's kind of take it or leave it as with how he plays defense these days because of how much he has to do on offense. What I would prefer to see with this team is Ty Lue to not really kowtow to the idea of who these guys are and you know say, look, this is a championship-caliber team. Dwayne Wade, you can come off the bench. I know you're friends with LeBron. You can come off the bench. But I'd also like to see LeBron basically play the main role as point guard. It would probably take a little bit more out of him than what they want. I'm sure that's part of what they're thinking about. But at this point in his career, he's better at the same things that Derrick Rose is good at. And he could do this on his own. He, he, he could actually probably do it better than him and Kyrie did it if he was doing it by himself, if it weren't going to tire him out. So Neil's making faces at me to wrap up. But like real, <laughs> real fast... Like one, we haven't talked about Isaiah. Like, and like Isaiah is going to be a you know obvious puzzle when he comes back in. But we've also spent this whole segment not talking about Kevin Love. Sure, which is funny because you know we kind of forget that Kevin isn't Love's on this. That, team. Yeah, isn't that sort of a microcosm of Kevin Love's Cavaliers career in some ways? Right. So like Kevin Love was on the same AAU team as Isaiah. Like uh, there was a Lee Jenkins piece today about Isaiah. Apparently Isaiah sleeping with a basketball. Like literally, like he's just itching to get back. But like. Remember, like this is still a really good team with really good players on it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was going to point out before we wrapped up and moved on that uh, our Carmelo projection system, which we're going to roll out the team projections for, I believe uh, Thursday. Uh, if, you're, if you're listening to this um, uh, when this podcast drops, uh, they still call for the Cavs to win 56 games and uh, give them the second best chance of winning the title of any team in the league behind the Warriors. So, for all of the little nitpicking that we've done throughout the segment uh it does seem like uh, on paper at least the Cavs are going to be fine even though there are some things that they need to work out now uh I want to move on to the Celtics who are the number two team according to the projections in the east and also the only other team that I put in the top tier I think last week we had four top tier west teams uh you guys I don't know if you'll fight me on this or not but it does seem like the the Celtics and the Cavs are sort of far and away the two best in the east we have uh the Celtics down to win 47 games uh, according to the projections which is lower quite a bit than what Vegas and some of the maybe uh, subjective observers might pick for the team this year so I want to open up and and talk about the Celtics with you guys what what do you make of this new fangled Celtics team this overhauled Celtics team that now has Kyrie Gordon Hayward uh, and, and a lot pretty much the rest of their team might be all small forwards except maybe <laughs> Al Horford and Marcus Smart what, what do you guys think about this team are we too low on them giving them 47 wins as as the projection I think I know even less about them than I know about the Cavs I think I know decent amount about the Cavs and I'm just kind of low on them because of what might happen lineup wise with them but the Celtics are relying on way more young players and, and players that have kind of never played the roles that they're going to be asked to play including Kyrie to some extent when you factor in you know Kyrie kind of coming of age a little bit in Cleveland He's going to be asked to be the leader of that offense, whereas he didn't really have to do that in Cleveland. He chose to do it but didn't have to. Uh, we're going to see Gordon Hayward 
playing off the ball probably a little bit more than what he was used to, even though he wasn't always the guy in Utah. And I'm curious to see how Horford reacts to this because he's playing with more ball-dominant guys than he has in the past. But I don't, I don't love this team either because I don't really see a ton of defense there at all times, They're, depending on what lineups they play and the fact that they were a really high-pass team, a team that passed the ball, moved the ball really well. Kyrie Irving is going to kill a lot of that. And so I'm curious to see how it changes them as a club. Right. So you said, like, they're all small forwards this year. Well, last year they were kind of all point guards. Yeah. And, like, that's gone away. So, like, <laughs> so what's, what's next? All centers? <laughs> I mean, look at, the, look at New Orleans. But, right, right. But, but, yeah, like, they have less defense, like, obviously. But, like, Jalen Brown is going to get more minutes. And Jalen Brown looks like he's going to be a good defender. Uh, they are playing less of Isaiah Thomas, and that's going to help with the defense. Like, there are going to be fewer, you know, contortions that it has to do to, you know, cover for him. Although we should say Kyrie is not exactly a lockdown, you know, not Gary Payton in his prime. No, he is not. He certainly is not, but he is also not Isaiah Thomas. Yeah. And so, so yeah, like, they have a lot of questions being asked of them, but, like, they have they have answers because they, they were a deep team. They've sacrificed a lot of that depth. But, I mean, if you say, okay, so 47 wins is not too much for this, uh, for this team, uh, if you, I went into the, the Carmelo projections and, like, plugged in if they had not done the trade, if they had brought back Isaiah, if they had still signed Hayward, and if they had, uh, you know, kept Jay Crowder around, it's bad out 49.2 wins. So, like, that is not that much more. It's, it's a little bit more than, like, the 45.8 that we have of them or whatever it is. But, uh, like, they had already over proje- overperformed their projection from last year, so... Like, they are kind of on pace to be a little bit better than they were. Right, exactly. They won five more games than we would have expected them to win based on their point differential. So even if they had done nothing, like you said, Kyle, they were probably going to take a step back anyway. And so in some ways, this is kind of a proactive move to try to offset that or at least uh, you know morph on the fly into a team that's better equipped, not just in the regular season, but also in the playoffs. Uh, and, and you know that they had Cleveland as sort of their target throughout all of this. So Maybe my question uh, that 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 logically leads to is, is this a team that's better equipped to hang with the Cavs, possibly beat the Cavs, and should I even think about them potentially contending better with the with the Warriors if they should make the finals? So Isaiah, like in the rest of the Celtics team, were, was on record as always saying they thought they matched up better with the Warriors than they did with the the Cavs, which is. You know, it's That's easy, easy to say. It's easy to say when like it's kind of obvious that you're never going to be able to test that theory. But uh, but they were the ones that uh, that broke the the undefeated streak uh, two seasons ago of the Warriors. They, they they played some good games against them. So so yeah, there's a chance. Like they still have a lot of those pieces. But um, no, not really. <laughs> yeah, I I think that they might have a better chance at beating Cleveland just because of addition by subtraction and taking Kyrie away from the Cavs especially when the, the secondary options that you have in Cleveland now are Derrick Rose and Dwayne Wade and not guys that I, don't, I think you'd want to count on at this point. It's asking a lot of Kevin Love to kind of reemerge as that sort of player as well. But I, there's no way that I think that they compete with the Warriors, at least not year one of this new-look team that you have in Boston. There's still too many questions to be answered there. But, yeah, it's going to be a lot for LeBron to kind of beat that team by himself if Rose and Wade break down and if Kevin Love doesn't become what he was before in Minnesota. Okay, so let's leave the top tier there and move on to the middle tier of the East, which I think is kind of fascinating. I mean, it is so far below what we talked about as the middle tier of the West, and yet all of the teams in here are almost interchangeable with each other. So I'm going to start with uh, the Toronto Raptors, who we had projected, according to Carmelo, to win 45 games in, in the East, and this is a team that... I think they are what they are at this point. I think that's fair to say. We know what they are, and maybe that has kind of maxed out in in terms of their ability to uh, contend with some of the better teams. But also, they're a pretty good team. They were a great offensive team last year. So what do you guys think about them this year? And also, uh, what do you think about them maybe long-term, how long they can kind of keep this together? I I like them, actually. It'll sound crazy. There's not a whole lot of justification to say that I really love what they're doing because they've pretty much plateaued and stayed stagnant. But I think the timing of doing that, and this is kind of what was smart before and kind of what Kyle was alluding to before about the Bulls, by keeping the team as is as opposed to tearing it all the way down, like some people probably thought they should have, the fact that Cleveland kind of 
underwent this really strange transformation without Kyrie and now maybe lose LeBron in the next year. And the fact that Boston is kind of in their first year of this iteration, a team like Toronto actually stands to gain just a little bit because these other teams are so different than what they were a year ago. And so I think it's smart to stay as is. They did the extension with Norm Powell, which, you know, looks like a pretty decent deal to me as a good player. I, I, I tend to like them. I don't know if it'll result in them getting further than they got last year or definitely two years ago when they are in the conference finals. But I, I like the fact that they're keeping the team as is just until you know what shakes out with the rest of the conference. I mean, they better like the team as is because they're stuck with it for a couple <laughs> years. Yeah, all those guys, Lowry, uh, DeRozan, and now even Ibaka, who they re-signed over the offseason, are now three sort years, of in there for three years. For Surge. Yes, Surge. Like, that is, like, so that's where we can jump in. Like, there, there's a lot of regression in this team. That, and, like, some of it, like, is kind of uh, – might be an illusion. So Lowry's a good start, where Lowry seems to be in the decline phase of his career. Like, he's uh, – this is going to be his th- age 31 season, I think. It might have been last year. Point uh, guards tend to kind of start declining at that point. Right. Um, except he's shooting more threes than ever. His true shooting percentage went up by a good uh, deal last year. His assist and rebound percentage, like, have been holding steady. It's just that he played 60 games instead of, like, 77 the year before. So, like, yeah, it looks worse, and, like, maybe that's a function of age, but, like, we're still with the skinny Kyle Lowry age, where, like, <laughs> he, he's still uh, very, very good, like, when he was on the floor last year. But, like, other places on the roster were, like, Serge Ibaka, like, his block percentage never recovered from, like, the t- like all-time great to, like, not very good for, like, even a backup center. And, like, even his defensive rebounding stuff, which you can do the player tracking, when he defended a shot last year, uh, opponent shot about 53%, which is... It's good, not great. Like, it's okay. Um, the best players in the league, like the Rudy Gobert's and um, whomever, uh, Chris Dapps Porzingis, who we'll get to later, yeah. uh, are in the low 40s for that. Um, and uh, three seasons ago, Serge was at 40%. He was holding uh, opponents to. So OKC Ibaka is, is not coming back. Doesn't look like it. Okay. So uh, it sounds like uh, Toronto is maybe right about where they have been the past couple years, which is pretty good. Maybe not great. Maybe they'll uh, roll the dice and see what happens again. Let's move on to the Washington Wizards, who uh, have gone on record saying that they think they're the best team in the Eastern Conference. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. this was something that, that they said in, in training camp. First question is just, is there anything to back that up? Is there any possibility that they could contend for the Eastern Conference championship this year if everything breaks right? Or what's their realistic ceiling this year? I think, again, and kind of like what I just said about Toronto, they've got continuity. They've got this team coming back. They know what their roles are for the most part. They've got a young duo that is fun to watch in Beal and Wall. Otto Porter is signed now. and Who knows? Highest paid player on that team. I know. And so that, that could break one of two ways, I guess, now that he's paid. Does he keep his game where it is and improve? He's still relatively young. But I, I don't see much that, to me, suggests that they should take a leap above the other teams specifically because on the defensive end, they're just not special on that end. I think it would require them becoming special on that end to kind of overtake the first two or three teams we talked about. Now, they've improved under Scott Brooks in in his first year and presumably going forward. You you would expect them to get a little better defensively, but maybe not enough to, to really break through. Right, and when they were really, really good last year, they looked like a clear third best, maybe second best uh, team in the East. Uh, they were playing really well defensively, and then when they fell off and they like went on a losing streak, it was because the defense went away. So obviously, defense defense is where they you know need to pick it up. But there are reasons to think they'll be a little bit better than their projection. So like Otto Porter had a very good season last year, and our, our Carmelo projection expects him to be significantly worse. Um, and part of that is because just due to health, which we'll get to in Giannis, who has a you know controversial projection uh, coming up. But uh, Porter played 80 games last season, and most guys don't play 80 games, and that's uh, you know why he's projected a little bit lower. But like he's still a very good player. Beal is 20, and he's 24. Beal is also 24. He had an awful season two years ago, um, but like he seemed to find his rhythm last year, find his role. Uh, he was using the pick and roll like a little differently than most guys do, but still, you know, taking over a big part of the offense, kind of being used like Ray Allen used to be in Seattle, and like it seems like they're in a place where the the numbers can't really look at like 
how good the fit seems to be uh, in Washington right now. And maybe with continuity, like you mentioned, Chris, that this is something where when you have that, the three kind of young, good players together coming up at the same time, and you do have them over multiple years, that that is a situation where you can kind of expect more improvement than you would by taking all these disparate pieces, like some of the other teams in the East have have done, and, and tried to build a team from from a bunch of different places and players coming together maybe but the more we talk about them the more i start to think (laughs) how likely is it that washington becomes the next version of toronto i I, you know it's just they're young and so i don't quite think about that problem yet and who's to even say it's a problem because wizards fans would take this and making the playoffs consistently over the idea of what they've been in the past but there is a part of it this just kind of feels like there's still a player a really good player away and that was kind of the, the challenge with the Porter contract is by signing him to that, you kind of maxed out what you can do with this team, at least for right now. Yeah, and, and they might already be sort of the, the next Raptors. Uh, we have them projected for 46 wins. We had Toronto at 45, and they both have identical 1% chances of winning the NBA championship, according to the Carmelo projections. All right, so here's another team that I think is maybe more intriguing just because we don't know. Uh, you talked about not knowing anything about uh, Cleveland, how they'll play, especially without Isaiah or even when he comes back, about Boston with all their new pieces. How about the Charlotte Hornets, who a couple years ago looked like they could be sort of a dark horse team on the rise. They won 48 games. Uh, and then last season, they cratered and won only 36 games. Now they've got Michael Kidd-Gilchrist coming back, but Nick Batum is hurt they also have Dwight Howard I don't even know what to make of that so what do you guys think about this team I think they're really fascinating just because there's so many unknowns and there's so many different things that can go in different directions for them and individual like you break that down a level further the individual pieces can go in a bunch of different directions too like Dwight Howard was out here this offseason saying he's about to become the modern you know archetypal uh, big man and start shooting threes and you know raining jumpers from everywhere and this is Dwight Howard we're talking about. Yeah, how many years in, 13 years into his career? Five of 56 from three for his career, by the way. Five of 56. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, they're they're really interesting, but, like, they seem committed to a certain style of play, at least. So uh, for a long time they had Jeremy Lin and Kemba, not a long time, for a few years, they had Jeremy Lin and Kemba, uh, both pick-and-roll point guards, both uh, very good at that. Uh, Lin is, you know, gone last year, um, and now they have Malik Monk coming in. And so they're going to have an exciting backcourt and like Kemba at a certain point, like just has to get used to, you know, playing with other ball dominant guards. Yeah. I, I actually kind of like this team for the East. Again, Zach Lowe said that they are really elite at being in the East. This is a team we wouldn't even be talking about if it was the Western conference, but I do kind of like them again. Continuity you figure might help here. They're bringing most of their guys back on this team. They're relatively young when you look at a lot of the guys that they have. I hate Nick Batum's injury because I kind of feel like that actually is a really big shot against them if he's going to miss 10, 8, 10, 12 weeks, whatever it is. He's really versatile and really helps them on both sides of the court. But I do like some things about this team. I think Dwight makes them interesting. I'm not sure if he makes them a whole lot better. Rich Cho I sat down and talked with a couple weeks ago. He really, really loved that move. He thinks it kind of makes them tougher in some ways, which is interesting because of how it goes against the grain of the perception. Cody Zeller coming off the bench might be an interesting move for them. But it's a team that does enough of the little things that I think they'll make the playoffs again. I just don't know how much noise they'll make if Nick Batum's injury is going to keep him out that long. Yeah, and that's kind of a shame, too, because uh, when I first ran the round of projections in which they had uh, Batum healthy, they were really once again kind of pushing toward that upper 40s win projection, uh, and it seemed like they could be sort of a dark horse type of team. Now that uh, Batum is out, they've settled in more toward 46 wins, just like the Raptors and uh, just like the Wizards that we just talked about. So I guess they'll be in the mix, uh, and, and we'll have to see whether Howard can become that prototypical uh, modern big man like he promised to be. Uh, let's talk about the Milwaukee Bucks, which is another really intriguing team. These are all intriguing teams. They're not very good teams, but they're definitely uh, interesting in, in their own way. And to me, I mean, the first 
thing that you have to talk about with the Bucks is Giannis uh, and and how much of a, a leap forward he made last year and whether he can, can kind of continue to do that and move toward that LeBron territory. I kind of looked at LeBron. You know, it's a natural comparison because they both can do just everything there is to do on a court. They're huge. They're fast. Uh, and LeBron teams, once he sort of reached Giannis's current age, uh, they... N- only won fewer than 50 games twice from that point on. Uh, he's, he's 23 or will be 23 this season. Uh, and so the natural question is, can Giannis be that type of player that sort of is an automatic 50-win team when you kind of put him on there and then sort of build to a championship level from there? That's kind of the basement. And then you add pieces. Uh, is, is he on that trajectory? Does he need to be in the next couple of years for this Milwaukee team to kind of stay together and, and really put something together uh, as, as a small market team before maybe everything gets kind of cast to the wind? I think he's there now. Mm-hmm. Um, at least his stat line says he is. Um, so when we did the, the Russell Westbrook stories last year at the end of last year, because he had all the triple doubles and even adjusted per hundred possessions, he was, you know, by far the best, uh, Giannis was on that list, too. He was sandwiched between Larry Bird and Wilt Chamberlain, down around number 30 all-time for, you know, triple-double seasons. That's, that's, you know, mediocre company, right? Right, and, and so that's part of a broader trend of a lot of stats being centralized in the best player on the, on the court, whether that's on the perimeter or not, uh, which wasn't always the case in the league. So in the last, like, five, six seasons, uh, we've seen a lot more of these seasons. But it's also just because he's really, really good. <laughs> I, I think that they already have the makings of a team that can win 50 games year in, year out. I like the nucleus of that team aside from just him, too. Guys that aren't necessarily the sexiest. I think they're more appealing to people like our types, the analytics types. Middleton is a really, really good player. Malcolm Brogdon, you know, no one is going to look at him and say he's the best prospect out of that class, but he won Rookie of the Year because he's so consistent. The big question I have here for them this season is – How does Jabari Parker's return impact them? A lot of times you see guys come back, they're rusty. He's been through this once before as well with his ACL. And so does he come back as the immediate help to them? Does he struggle uh, trying to get back to his old rhythm? He was really good when he got hurt last year. He was at 20 points a game. He was shooting for a while, I think, around 40% from three. And so I, I think that's kind of the thing that could push them to the next level. He's not great defensively yet, but if he comes back and he's able to give them the scoring punch that he had last year, Milwaukee becomes a dangerous team, and they become a team that I think is a dark horse if Boston struggles to kind of reach the Eastern Conference Finals if they're healthy. Yeah, and that fit, that question with a player coming back from injury, it can be a good thing or a bad thing or just a, a difficult process when you're bringing back a player who had a usage rate of 26.5. This is a player that other guys are going to have to accommodate when they come back. And that can be good because having more scoring is always good, but it can also be a, a growth thing for a team. Okay, so let's leave Milwaukee there and move on to the last team that I have in this group of middle teams. And I don't even know if they belong here, but I'm just going to throw them out there. The Miami Heat. This team that a year ago went 41 and 41. Uh, two years ago, they won 48 games, though, and they still have this nucleus that I think is really interesting. There's some talent there uh, with Hassan Whiteside, Goran Dragic, Dion Waiters even had a, a kind of a season that was unlike what us analytics types have come to expect from him, uh, ragging on him so many years. So what do you guys think about this team? It's, it's kind of a tough team to figure out, I think. I mean, Dion Waiters would be the MVP if he played like he did for that stretch. Yes. Um, but no, like, I think it's an interesting thing. I think they have, like, a really interesting backcourt between Drogic and Josh Richardson. Yeah. And, like, obviously MVP Dion. <laughs> uh, but, like, to me, the question or, like, the, the concern is Whiteside, who um, is obviously very good. Like, he, you know, got his contract, whatever. But uh, his block percentage uh, plummeted. He had been... At around 9 or 10, which is all-time level for three straight seasons, including that one, you know, portion of a season where he came in late. And then he dropped down to half of that. And he just wasn't the same player. And, like, this is a guy who already didn't play the best positional defense. Like, he was just, like, a terror just getting every block. He averaged, like, close to five blocks a game. And then all of a sudden he wasn't. And if he's not that same guy, he can still be getting the rebounds. He can still be, you know, scoring at a pretty decent rate. Uh, but like that was the real value that he was given. One of the big values that he was given to the team. I I think you kind of have to look at them a couple different ways. This year, 
they they could be dangerous if, if they play the sort of defense that they're capable of playing. They were one of the best defensive teams in the league. When they started pairing the scoring along with that, they were just lethal, and they went on that really long, what was it, 14, 15-game win streak they went on last year randomly out of nowhere and, and joined the playoff race. Should have made the playoffs if it hadn't been for the fact that teams laid down for the Bulls. I think they tied record-wise with the Bulls, but they, they had the same record as the eighth seed there. So they should have made the playoffs. But I, I, I think that they could be decent this year. My concern for Miami is more long-term because I think they locked up a bunch of guys. They kind of have really big bets out on guys, uh, several, at least three or four different players that all have pretty significant money tied up in them. And it's not clear how many of those guys will really become top-line starters for them. And to me, it looks like they've just got a lot of guys that could end up being mediocre that are all making pretty considerable money that has their cap tied up. And so that's the big question is, who can take a step forward that really proves that they're worth the money? James Johnson is there. Um, you look at the fact that they just signed Richardson to the extension. You've got to figure out what you can get out of Justice Winslow as he comes back from his injury. You've got Tyler Johnson still making big money. Like Kyle just said, you've got Whiteside. So there are a lot of questions there, but their future, I think, is a bigger question than what they do this season. Yeah, in some ways, this uh, this team seems like it would have been much better, obviously, but also kind of positioned to be better if Chris Bosh had not had his ailment and been forced to retire for for heart related reasons. And so, with Bosh in there, this team be- becomes a lot more scary. And now there's there's just sort of this hole that a lot of players are trying to fill, but not necessarily anything for sure. Right, and they the other thing is they also have a lot of young players who have shown a lot of promise, but then like took a step back last year. Uh, so Winslow is one who just forgot how to shoot the basketball. Yeah, and I thought he was going to be great coming out of college. All, all of his metrics pointed to that, and he's been pretty terrible. And even Richardson, who like we still like, um, is a three-point specialist who just didn't hit his threes last year. And so like this is a thing where they both have big bets, like Chris was saying, but they also have um, assets tied up in young guys who they need to hope return to form. Okay, so let's leave it there for the Heat and also the middle tier and move on to the dregs of the East, which is truly the dregs of the league. And there's one team at the top of this group that I kind of wrestled with the idea of putting them in the middle tier. Maybe you guys can convince me that maybe I should have put them in there, and that is the Philadelphia 76ers, everyone's sort of hot, you know, up-and-coming team. This seems like this could finally be the, the first year in a long time that there's excitement around the Sixers and that they might actually be able to put together the nuclear of not just a good team this year, but something to go down the line and and potentially people are talking about a dynasty. There's a lot of overcooked Sixers uh, talk out there. What do you guys think about this team? Uh, I should say we have them projected for 39 wins, which would be uh, an 11-game improvement over last season, and Vegas has them even higher. Uh, Vegas has them way too high, I think. I I think we've kind of learned our lesson for the most part. You cannot put teams that are using this many young players that high. I mean, if you're adding a Jimmy Butler type piece to a group like Minnesota, I think it's a little bit more justified. I think they're even uh, thought of as being a little bit too good at this moment in time. But the Sixers in particular, because none of these guys have ever made it through a season. And I mean, we could talk immediately about Embiid's contract extension for what was it? 148, $144 million or whatever it was. A max extension that obviously is going to be really heavily tied to how much he plays and how healthy he stays if he's healthy and they get something good out of one of their two rookies essentially uh i think that they could make the playoffs i think that's asking a lot for one or two of your rookies to be good and productive as rookies i think you're more looking for them to show positive signs at all but for them to actually be good productive players off the bat i think that's asking a lot and asking Embiid to be healthy as well i don't i don't quite see them making the playoffs this year yeah, and for uh, for us kind of basketball nerds, uh, we're so enamored with Joel Embiid that it's difficult to remember that he's still only played 31 total games in the three seasons since he was drafted, which is even even reading that out doesn't seem real because his potential is so immense and, and he's such a likable player, I think, also. Uh, but uh, yeah, just getting health out of him for a full season would be sort of out of place with his track record, for sure. Right, and also remember that it's rare for rookies to come in and play well. Yeah. Like, so not just young players, like Chris was saying, but like specifically the kind of players that they have coming in um, on the Sixers. 
So rookie point guards, especially one and done like young guys like Fultz, don't come in and play well. Kyrie Irving is basically the only guy who did it, and they didn't win any games. Like Ben Simmons coming in, going to play point forward. He looks great. He's a phenomenal passer. Going to be really fun to watch. Like let's so let's take his archetype. Ben Simmons, as good as we can possibly make him. Is he LeBron James? Let's say he is. <laughs> LeBron was 25-5 and five in his first year, and they won 35 games. Yeah. Like, so what are we expecting from these guys? Like, if, they, if he plays as well as LeBron and Embiid play, plays his games, are they better than the 35 with LeBron? Like, maybe, but, like, that team didn't have nothing. Okay, so I think we're done with the truly interesting teams in the East, so maybe we'll do a little bit more of a lightning round with these last teams in the East, starting with the Orlando Magic, who... Uh, what do you guys make of this team, uh, the way that they're currently constructed? There's a lot of talent on hand, a lot of raw talent. They've been that way for a number of years, and they still don't really seem to fit together and have really any kind of uh, outlook of, of being better this season. But what do you guys think? I, I, I'm just curious what year of the rebuild is this at this point for this team? I mean, it, I'm fine with the fact that they need to figure it out, but it just kind of – I, I wish they had something that I was really confident about that, you know, that this guy is doing so well and I know he'll be around. We just need to figure out the rest of the pieces. And they don't even have that at this point. And so that's that's kind of my fear with them right now. It's just that I don't see much that you can definitively say will be there two, three years from now because everybody is just kind of either middling or not really showing the promise that you hope that they would have. Yeah, and this will be the seventh season since they last made the playoffs or finished above 500. So it's kind of a long rebuild. I mean, I got nothing for you on the Magic. Like, I, I am just looking <laughs> for like nothing to say. I'm just looking for what my guy Jonathan Simmons does over there. Yeah, um, the two Jonathan Simmons and Isaac, uh, the rookie out, out of Florida State, they seem interesting at least. And then if Alfred Payton, who I think our initial version of Carmelo, uh, the projection system, thought he would be great, did not expect him never to be able to shoot in his life. Uh, if he ever makes a breakthrough, maybe that's the ticket forward for this team. Okay, so let's talk about the Detroit Pistons, uh, another team that's sort of in this sub-500 mess at the bottom of the East. And to me, the central question here is whether or not two of their top players, ostensibly, can kind of bounce back from really bad years, and that's Andre Drummond and Reggie Jackson. Drummond, last season, fell from fifth among centers in real plus-minus to 35th, and Reggie Jackson fell from 14th among point guards to 69th. They were minus 11.3 points per 100 possessions when Reggie Jackson was on the floor, to the point that they had to put in Ish Smith, who is kind of a journeyman-type point guard, just to be able to function as a team to despite going out and getting this guy, Reggie Jackson, who had been so good uh, even a couple years before. So what's going on with Detroit, and how long will Stan Van Gundy still be there to see what what happens with this rebuild? I mean, so it's going well enough that uh, Stan has, was asked by the Detroit Free Press and uh, gave them an answer on, will he commit to Reggie Jackson over Ish Smith um, to get minutes? And he was like, I don't know. We're going to give the you know the best <laughs> it's an the open competition. Give us the best chance to win. He actually said that. so like yeah, that's kind of where they are. Like can the team get back around um playing with Reggie? Because when they came in, they were a pick and roll team. And Reggie is really good at running the pick and roll, um, or at least he was before he hurt himself. And with Drummond, you would think that that would also be uh, one of the only ways to kind of use him effectively offensively. Right. And so th- what you just said is key. The only ways, like Drummond is really good at what Drummond is good at. And you would think he'd be good at, you know, he seems to be able to show out on the pick and roll, defend whatever. Their defense got worse when he was out there. Um, so, like, it's really a question at this point. I- like, I hesitate to say it because we're going to get yelled at, but, like, can Andre play in the league? Like, he is so bad at free throws. He's not giving them what they need on defense. And, like, he's not good at a lot of stuff. He's very good at a few things, but, like, it's a few things. It's really tough because you look at the Pistons now, and the league has changed since the guy that they thought they found as their franchise player. The league has changed so much now to where you're not really sure if he fits well. Andre Drummond is that person that I'm talking about. And it's kind of like Roy Hibbert. Not quite that same thing, but you've got kind of a slow-footed player that has a couple real definitive skills that just aren't today's NBA when you really look at it. There's no guard that you're sure of that is going to be there for the next few years to partner with him. I like the move to get Avery Bradley when Boston had to make the salary dump there, but it's not clear what their timeline is anymore. And so Avery Bradley is going to be a free agent after this year. 
do you keep him? Do you sign him to a max deal with this roster? Should Stan Van Gundy be the person to make that decision? There's so many questions around this team that I'm just not comfortable with, and it, it sucks because the East has openings, but I'm not sure Detroit is good enough to really seize one of them right now. Yeah, and they filled one of those openings just a couple of years ago, but yeah, like you said, it's unclear whether they even have any of the pieces enough to do that this year. Okay, let's leave it there with the Pistons and move on to another Central Division team that is in rebuild mode, and that's the Indiana Pacers. Paul George is gone. Now it seems like it's the Miles Turner era, uh, which could be a very good thing. Our projections think that he's a future all-star. Uh, Kevin Garnett is on his projection, on his similar players list, which is really exciting. Also, Brooke Lopez is on there, maybe a little bit less exciting. Uh, and they also have Victor Oladipo, who is a really good all-around player. Is that going to be enough for this team uh, to, to kind of take one of those open spots that you mentioned in the playoffs, Chris? Uh, and, and what are they doing long-term around that, that core? Are they just building from the middle and, and kind of committing to that? A little bit, which I was disappointed by. You look at their history, and I think over the last something like 28 years, they've only missed the playoffs twice or three times. And so this is a team that really doesn't believe in bottoming out in an era where you basically need to do that to get top-level talent. They haven't picked in the top five, I think, over that entire 25-year span. And so, uh, and they've only picked in the top 10, I think, maybe twice or three times. And so it, it's a situation where they seem to be really opposed to the idea of bottoming all the way out. They wanted talent back for Paul George. They got it, uh, but they didn't get any draft picks. And so that's where I'm a little bit confused Victor Oladipo is not a cheap player. He's getting paid like someone that produces the way he produces. And so that's my only question here is, did you kind of, were you too eager to win right now? And if you are too eager to win right now, do you at least get the payoff of making the playoffs from it? And I'm not even sure that they have that this year. And I mean, so this is kind of the the conversation with the Pacers and the league as a whole, where like, this is what uh, lottery reform is, is there to fix, where it doesn't make it frankly, it doesn't make sense for them to be as good as they're going to be. Like, they have Thad Young, who's, you know, good, but, you know, not going to do anything special for them. They have, uh, who you forgot to mention, the best player on the team, Bojan Bogdanovic. Oh, yeah, how uh, could I forget? He actually might be the best player on the team. Like, he had a very good he season last year. He needs to be better on defense for that. Uh, yes, but they, ha- they have good players uh, who, you know, can get them into, you know, the late, um, the late seeds in the playoffs, or they can, you know, be uh, one of the better lottery teams, but... But yeah, like it's going to be a much better environment for them when missing the playoffs doesn't mean that you're just screwed. Yeah, missing the playoffs like narrowly with this team and the core that they already have and then maybe lucking into some kind of pick. That's kind of the new uh, ticket to maybe building a, a really good contending team. But again, the lottery reform doesn't necessarily kick in soon enough maybe for this mm-hmm. team to kind of uh, reap rewards from it. But we'll see what happens with them. Uh, right now, Carmelo has them projected to win 32 games. So probably not good enough to make the playoffs. Uh, Let's move on to uh, a team that all three of us have probably pretty mixed feelings about and also a lot of familiarity with, and that's the New York Knicks. Uh, This is the post-Mellow era. Uh, This is the Chris Stapps, Porzingis era in New York. Uh, What what is this team going to look like this season? Uh, What's there to say about this team even? It's going to look like a team that has way too many centers and way too (laughs) few people that play defense. Uh, You know, I I, I think they'll get it figured out, whether it's this year or next year, with Porzingis becoming their centerpiece. I think that he'll do fine eventually. I wrote a story laying out that he actually shot the ball better without Carmelo on the court, but kind of posited this idea that part of the reason he did that was the fact that he really feasted on second stringers the first six minutes of the second quarter, and that he kind of did that in his rookie year as well. And so I think it'll take some time, him getting used to being a number one option and being able to play by himself against top-line talent. But, yeah, they've got four or five different guys that are all capable centers. Really, only one of them is capable on defense fully, and that's Joakim Noah. And you don't want him out there for big spurts of time. And so I... I, I just think that they have too many young guys that can't play defense. They've got Tilakina, who who looks like he'll be okay on defense and has to figure out the offensive side. But I, I'm just curious to see who's going to defend for this team. And, you know, I think that will have a big part in dictating who actually stays after this season. I mean, the question is who's going to defend. And they added Enos Cantor. <laughs> and Doug McDermott. Yeah, oh just my. all these guys that can't defend. back out here. But, but yes, um, like the big question is like how does Porzingis act as the centerpiece 
um, where he's not just you know has to go against the best the other defense has with Melogon, but he has to then figure out how to get and keep other guys involved, which he hasn't had to do. Like he's been the guy that they've been trying to get involved. Um, but like you look at their point guards now, and like Rose wasn't a great distributor, but like he would distribute it well enough. Now they have Ron Baker starting if Nilakina isn't starting. And behind that, like, it's not like they can go to whomever. Like, they've got Ramon Sessions. Like, I don't know, man. Like, this is going to be an interesting Knicks year. <laughs> but maybe interesting is what the Knicks needed compared with some of the past seasons where it was interesting in, like, a very off-court drama type of way, but not interesting on the court in the sense that you knew that they were probably going to go out and, and lose uh, like, 50 to 60 games. I've I've seen this interesting before when Tony Douglas was starting. <laughs> like, I mean, we've had a, we've had plenty of this. Yeah. Uh, well, for what it's worth, Carmelo, the projection system says that the Knicks are basically no worse off without Carmelo, the player. Uh, it has them down for 30 wins. They won 31 last season. So let's go uh, to a different borough and talk about the Brooklyn Nets, who have. D'Angelo Russell now. That's really exciting, right? Uh, and and that's kind of all I have to say about them. <laughs> I, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Nets if there's anything other than hyping up D'Angelo to say about them. I mean, D'Angelo does look really good in preseason. He does, and, yes. And, like, he looked really good as a rookie for spurts before, you know, he had his whole, you know— you know, snitching debacle or whatever. Yeah, whatever where, that was. Where he just got frozen out from the team after that. Um, but, like, yeah, this is a team that, like, the biggest story was Jeremy Lin's hair, I think, this offseason. <laughs> and, like, let's just say, like, if if you need to put out a press release or, like, a statement on Players' Tribune about your haircut, maybe just don't get the haircut, man. You know, I, I actually kind of like them. Uh, not like them to the idea that they're going to make the playoffs or anything like that, anything close to that. But they've got enough guys that they're kind of trying out to see how they fit, if they can be long-term pieces. Karis LeVert from Michigan, who was there but hurt last year, I'm interested to see how he does uh, because he actually has a pretty good skill set. And so if they can utilize him. Rondé Hollis-Jefferson is still a guy that I think needs to see more time to see you know, how his athleticism plays out. Can he develop a shot? Um, they, they took on some bad contracts. Obviously, Mozgov being the, the clearest example of that for, for Brook Lopez and, and part of that D'Angelo Russell deal. But I do also like the idea that they're bringing in somebody like Alan Crabb, who they wanted anyway. He makes too much money. But at this point with where they're at, money can't be their consideration. If he can play and if he can fit with your nucleus of young guys, I think it might work out for them. And you might, you know, you might have this season pan out to be something meaningful, even though it's clearly not going to result in the playoffs. Okay, so let's talk about last and least in the East. Uh, two teams that I think are actually very similar on their trajectory. Uh, that's the Atlanta Hawks and the Chicago Bulls. Both of these teams made the playoffs a bunch of times over the last decade. In fact, I think the Bulls uh, only finished with a sub-500 record a couple times since 2004. Uh, and the Hawks had made the playoffs 10 straight years, including last season. Now both teams appear to have completely blown everything up. And they might be the the teams that are most flagrantly tanking in the entire league. So uh, maybe the only question is which team will be worse and which team is positioned to maybe make an appearance at, uh, among the higher tiers of the East sooner. The Chicago Bulls, I think, are the worst team and it's not even close. That's the way I feel. <laughs> and the part of the reason I feel that way stems from me and Kyle being down in Vegas for Summer League. The fact that that was basically the Bulls roster down there, like not even summer league roster, but that that was their... Their summer league roster was their and real And that roster. they were getting blasted by summer league rosters. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that said a lot. Um, now, granted, they looked good when they played against Cleveland earlier this week in a real game with LeBron James playing. But, I mean, LeBron was rusty, and the fact that Cleveland basically hasn't played together before, the Bulls... This team is going to have so much experience having played together through Summer League, and I, I feel like it could be multiple Summer Leagues these guys play together because they're just not ready for the big stage. And I, they don't want to be. They, they want to lose here, obviously. But they're, they're kind of a mess, and, and the fact that Levine's not even going to be there. Levine is the guy they're kind of hinging all this stuff on, and he's not even going to be there for a while as he kind of recovers from his own. Chris, experience. all those Summer Leagues together, that's continuity. We talked about that at the beginning of the show. That's how you build a great... Okay, fine. Yeah. I, I, I won't try to push that. <laughs> I mean, for me, the, the way you judge a, te a bad team, especially, is who are the pieces that are getting played that, like, 
it really looks like, ooh, ooh, why, why is that guy in there? And, like, Justin Holiday is – well, like, Zach Levine is out. Justin Holiday is going to be, like, a key part of that team who's, like, a Knicks cast-off. Um, and, like, he, he can, you know, rebound, he can defend, like, whatever. But, like, that's not really something that you want, um, you know, to be running out in the starting lineup. Uh, so yeah, like the Bulls are just the Bulls are a problem, man. <laughs> so maybe the Hawks will uh, are at least doing like a, a normal level tanking, maybe not like full hinky. Okay, okay. So here's where we split on uh, like bad now, bad in the future. Yeah. Like, so I was talking about this with a friend. If Dennis Schroeder is as good as he's looked in you know spurts in the playoffs, whatever, he is the Southeast Division's what like sixth best starting guard. Yeah. Like it is. Like, not that – like, they don't have that much to build around, and, like, they're starting from a place, like, we've been talking about on the treadmill where, like, they have to get very bad to, you know, get, you know, any kind of, you know, return on, like, their badness. Okay, so uh, I think that'll do it for our show. We made it through all 30 teams. How do you guys feel? Excited? Ready to stop talking about teams and actually doing legitimate podcast episodes? That'll be nice. <laughs> yeah. That'll be awesome because honestly, making arguments for some of these teams when, at the end of the day, you know it's still Golden State and everybody else, and to to talk about the Hawks and the Bulls and what chance they have of doing anything, uh, it'll be nice to talk about individual teams and kind of where they're at. Yeah, we'll talk about the Hawks and Bulls maybe like one more time uh, over the rest of the season. Yeah, like a couple seasons into the lab, we'll we'll revisit their situations. Well, thanks for sticking it out with all this. And that was our second episode of The Lab. Thank you for listening, everyone out there uh, downloading our podcast. Our podcast producers are Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast GM continues to be Chad Matlin. Maybe I'll think of interesting nicknames for him down the line. Our podcast, Stan Van Gundy. Uh, you can email us at podcast at 538.com. We'd love to hear what you think. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we're also there. We're on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. You can also find us in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Wherever you find us, be sure to rate and review the show. It helps others discover the program. I'm Neil Payne. Thanks again for listening, and talk to you next time.